This is Desert Island Torah Parsha Edition, where we stick to our theme of sharing three ideas of Torah in around 30 minutes, but exclusively on the Parsha, so you will have three meaningful Divrei Torah to share at your Shabbos table each week. As we are now at Parsha Toldot, we are joined again by the amazing Yoetza Halacha, teacher and Mashkicha Ruchanet, Rabbanet Chena Goldberg. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you so much, Shana, for coming on today. It's great to have you on again. So we are kicking off Desert Island Tara Parsha edition with Parsha Toldot using our structure of sharing just three ideas. We are doing Parsha Toldot with three of your favorite ideas. So are you ready to go into your first idea? Yes. Thank you so much for having me back here on this great podcast. Uh, Parsha Toldot is a very rich Parsha. There's so many things going on that you could focus on, like all of the Parsha in Sefer Brishit. So definitely wasn't easy to choose what to, what to speak about. But I want to start off with an idea based on an insight from the very first Pasuk on the Parsha. It's an insight from Rav Yehuda Amital uh, Datsal, the founding Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Hartzion in Alonshvot, where I live. And um, he talks about the first pasuk in the Parsha where it says, Ve'ela todot Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holid at Yitzchak. The pasuk tells us that these are the offspring of Yitzchak, the son of Avraham. Avraham begat Yitzchak. And Rashi comments on what seems to be a redundant and unnecessary double language. How come after it tells us that Yitzchak is the son of Avram, does it need to tell us that Avram begat, that Avram uh, gave birth to Yitzchak? So Rashi tells us that the reason that it has this double language is the that the boards of the generation, they would claim that uh, Yitzchak um, was the child of Avimelech, that it was Avimelech who had induced Sarah's pregnancy. Why did they think that? Because we know that Avram and Sarah had been married for many years and she hadn't gotten pregnant during those years. And then after only a short time of being in Grar, it seems that she had entered pregnancy. So what did Hashem do? How did he respond to this? He made sure that Yitzchak's face was very, very similar to Avram's face. And that way, everybody would know that Avram will be at Yitzchak. Everyone would know that Avram was, in fact, the father of Yitzchak. And that's why the Pesach says that Yitzchak ben Avraham, Yitzchak was the son of Avraham, because there's actual like testimony, there's actual proof that Avram will be at Yitzchak. So we see that um, this was a response to the people of the generation who would make claims that it can't be that Yitzchak was actually the son of Abraham. That's Rashi. Now, Rav Amital asked, is it possible that the Torah really adds a Pasuk just to answer the foolish claims of some boorish, ignorant, you know, um, absurd people of the time? Who really cares what some random people were saying? Why would the Torah take the time to address them? And he answers that we have to take a step back first to understand who Avram was in the context of the time that he lived and the way that his contemporaries reacted to his teachings. And Rav Mital goes on to explain that we know that Avram was the father of monotheism. He was the first one who really believed 
and taught others that there is one creator of the world. And he strived to live not just, you know, with this belief that there's one God, but also by the values of staka and mishpat, by the values of charity and justice, even though there was really no one else in his time or nothing out there in his time that was similar to any of his beliefs and practices. And Rav Amital says that it could be that there were other nations who felt intuitively the truth in Avram's way, but they just thought that it's too exalted, too unattainable, too superhuman. Like, it's not normal to expect people to live uh, by that standard. And therefore, they thought that if we were to live with those values and beliefs, it just won't pass the test of time. It won't last. We won't be able to pass that on to our descendants. And it could be that, therefore, they thought better to, like, believe in something less than that than to be left with nothing. You know, like we say, tafasta maruba, lo tafasta. Like, when sometimes when you're going after too much, you end up with nothing. If you aim too high, you could come out empty-handed. So when we learn that Sarah was in Akara and she was barren, Rabbi Vital says that it's not just that she wasn't able to have a child, but it was that there was a barrenness, not just on the level of like biological progeny, but also there was like a spiritual barrenness, that there was no one to pass on this belief to, there was no one to pass on this heritage to. But then Yitzchak's born, and now all of a sudden there's potential, and there exists the possibility to show that, look, there will be a continuation of this reality of people believing in God. But as Yitzchak grows up, we see that actually the people around them are in doubt. Why? Because Yitzchak in personality is nothing like his father. We know that Avram was an extrovert. He was super involved with Chesed. He was super involved with Kirov. He was engaged in outreach, and he was always interacting with other people. Whereas when Yitzchak comes onto the scene, he was much more of an introvert. And his Mizah was one of Gvura, one of inner strength. We really don't hear, compared to how much we hear about Avram and Yaakov, we really don't hear much about him or much uh, from him. So while Avraham might have had a child from Sarah, it could be that the people around them were thinking, okay, you have a child and maybe you're teaching him your beliefs, but you see, he's not really a successor. He's not really like you. He's not really engaged in a spiritual way in the same things that you're engaged with. And that's what opened the door to these, let's say, meaning that's what opened the figurative door to these um to these mockers of this generation to wonder if really maybe Avram wasn't actually the father. And this, Rav Amital says, is the deeper reason why Hashem created Yitzhak to look so similar to Avraham, so that it would be clear to Avram that he is his father's son. Meaning the Torah is not really responding to these Litzanei Hador. It's really responding to all of us to tell us that even when you have a father and a son, who don't seem to act exactly the same in terms of their personality, that doesn't mean that they can't have the same belief system and they can't ascribe to the same values. Meaning there's a chiddush here that when we pass on values to our children or our students, it doesn't mean that they have to be carbon copies of exactly who we are. It doesn't mean that they have to express our values in the same exact way that we express them. There could be different paths along which we travel to reach a similar goal. And, you know, Rav Amital himself was known always to say that he was not trying to produce little Amitalim in his students. He didn't want his Talmudim to be carbon copies of who he was. He wanted them to be thinking, feeling of De Hashem, who bring their personal and unique way of connecting, even when the outer packaging may look the same, meaning maybe we all ascribe to the same 
um, halakha and we all keep the same mitzvah, but we don't all have to um, bring it, you know, to expression in the same way. And that that's the deeper message here, that the Torah is telling us that when these people from the outside, which is really all of us, kind of see a father and a son who don't in personality resemble one another, they don't, they're not carbon copies, they don't mirror each other. That doesn't mean that it's not really a father and son. And it doesn't mean that the Masora can't be passed. And it doesn't mean that people can express similar values in very different ways. So that's an idea that really speaks to me just in terms of every person really finding their unique way to bring their strengths and their personality to the table when it comes to their Avodat Hashem. Beautiful. Beautiful. I was going to say, um, it's so relatable to us um, as human beings because we all have our own unique um, traits. Um, but also, again, with Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, it's like Avraham is Chesed, Yitzchak, Kibura. Yaakov is, you know, Emmet, um, mm-hmm. connected more to, you know, Talmud Torah, and Avraham was more Chesed, and Yitzchak was more um, Tefillah, and we all have, like, the specific mitzvot that you know, apply to us more. Obviously, we, we do with the mitzvot, but there are mitzvot that speak to us more also. Um, Absolutely, yeah, right off the bat, in the stories of the Avod and Imahot, we see a lot of very different personalities. So, you know, um, I think even when we talk about the fathers and the mothers of the Jewish people, even they didn't all look and act the same. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the first idea. And then as a second idea, which is a continuation, I think, of this thread of Yitzchak's orientation to his Avod Hashem, I want to focus on a Pasuk a little later, uh, when Yitzchak and Rivka are struggling with infertility and they're davening for a child. And after they daven, the Pasuk tells us, lo Hashem that Hashem allows himself to be entreated by Yitzchak's tefillot and Rivka conceives and she becomes pregnant. And Rashi comments that it's Yitzchak's tefillot, that's why it says Vayater lo, that it's Yitzchak's tefillot that were answered. Why? Because it's Indomet Filat Sadiq ben Sadiq, Litfilat Sadiq, Indomet Filat Sadiq ben Rasha, Litfilat Sadiq ben Sadiq. That you can't compare the tefillot of a righteous person who is the child of the um, uh, unrighteous person, which is Rivka, meaning Rivka was a truly righteous person, but she was the daughter of Lavan, who was a Rasha. You can't compare her tefillot to the tefillot of a tzaddik ben tzaddik, to the tefillot of someone like Yitzchak, who himself was a tzaddik and who also was the child of a tzaddik. The fichach lo velola. That's why the Pasuk uh, emphasizes that he, lo, he, lo, he was answered specifically as opposed to Rivka. Now, I think um, the classic way that people usually understand this is that Yitzchak had greater merit because he had skudavot. He had the merit also of his father. So, you know, he was coming with like not just all of his good deeds, but he was coming also with the skuyot of his father. But I once heard a different explanation, and I can't remember now where I heard it, but it really resonated, which is that Yitzchak merited his prayers to be answered because he managed to be a tzaddik, even though his father was also a tzaddik. Meaning, while we might naturally think that it's harder to be a tzaddik if you grew up in a home that wasn't honest or that wasn't moral or that wasn't ethical, like Rivka did, it could also really be tough sometimes to have the motivation to just continue the misora that you were given, especially if you have parents who are really big tzaddikim and really big leaders, and to not want to go out and like forge your own path, to not want to like, you know, do the natural rebellious thing of like, 
defining yourself as an independent person. So Yitzchak is actually the first character in Tanakh that we read about who's in the role of an inheritor, whose job it is to just keep at what he was handed and to keep it going and make it stronger. And I think we see this in a few cases. It's also clearly captured in the Pasuk that describes Yitzchak redigging the same wells that his father had already dug, that the plishim had then filled and stopped up. You know, it tells us that that in that he returned and he digs out the wells of water that his father had already done back in uh, his days, that the plishim had stopped up. And then it says, he did exactly as well, and then he gives them the exact same names that his father had given them, you know, a generation before. Now, this is not the kind of work that others ever take note of or appreciate, meaning we notice when something new goes up. We notice when there's like a big new skyscraper or there's some new big project certify and strengthen the foundations of buildings that already make sure that something is safe and fortified. It actually reminds me of something my father-in-law once commented to my husband mm-hmm. when they were discussing people who from the outside, you know, may appear to be not especially motivated or driven or as if they're not making any real progress in life. And he said to him, you know, sometimes you have to run very hard just to stay in the same place. Meaning it could be really tough sometimes to just keep at what you're doing. I I like to think of it as like, think of, you know, that you're trying to get to the top of an escalator that's heading down. So from the outside, it could look to others that you're not moving. You're just staying in the same place all the time. But you know that you're actually working really hard to not go down because, you know, otherwise the the escalator is taking you down and you're working really hard to, to keep going up, even though it looks to others like you're not getting any where and there seems to be no progress and there's nothing innovating that happening. So uh, we know though that that at the end of the day, what keeps us going is the day in, day out grind of life and that it's not simple at all. And I think a large part of, of the Gvura of Yitzchak is that he finds the strength to do just that, that it takes real Gvura to work on yourself in those deep ways. Um, it also reminds me of uh, there's a famous saying from Rav Yisrael Salanter that first I wanted to change the world, but that was too hard. So I tried to change my country and that was too hard as well. So I tried to change my community, but I was unable. So instead, I decided to change myself. And uh, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman, who's the president of Yeshiva University, I read one time that he quoted a clever little sarcastic twist that he actually heard Rav Amital uh, say on this uh, little statement by Rav Salanter. And Rav Amital said, first, I tried to change myself, but that was too hard. So instead, I tried to change my community, but that proved too difficult. So I decided to change the world. Meaning sometimes it's actually harder for people to just work on like changing themselves and keeping at that. And they instead like try to go out and do huge things. And that really, um, you know, there's something sometimes easier about doing the flashier thing, the exciting thing, the new initiative, the new project, leaving your mark, getting all the credit. But it's actually the Yitzchaks of the world who keep our um 
keep 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 our society going in really true, uh, deep and meaningful ways. So that idea also speaks to me about the you know tzaddik ben tzaddik, which we usually explain as being the merit of schudavot, understanding it a little differently, that really just being a tzaddik ben a tzaddik and keeping at whatever it is that you that you were handed, obviously bringing your own unique personality to it, like I said in the first um, idea that I brought, but keeping at the same traditions and the same values and the same beliefs is not easy when you come from like a, a house or a family where it was a given and we need those people. This has a model of being able to keep at it and to keep that going, even if you're not going to get the credit for starting something new. Absolutely. So important. So should we go into your third idea? Yes. So the third idea um, is something that I heard from my husband, Judah, who heard it back uh, on actually a uh, Yeshiva Hartzion Gush Shabbaton back in 1998 from um, a rabbi and teen named Rabbi Chaim Jachter. And it really stuck with him. And I think it's also just uh, a beautiful idea and also relates into um, what we're facing right now, I think, in Israel. Uh, later on in the Parsha, when Esav comes in from the field and Yaakov is busy making soup. So Esav says to him, na min hadum, hadum you know, pour, pour into me now some of that very red stuff. Now, Esav in this Pasuk doesn't sound so much a Russia, an evil person, as much as he sounds just like a crude person. Give me some red stuff, you know, certainly not too polite. Uh, also lacking any nuance, any real description. He sounds like a little kid, like, give me some of that stuff. Give me some of that red stuff. So Rabbi Jatu used the opportunity back then on that Shabbaton to talk about how what he got from his Rebbe, Rav Luchenstein, was um, an appreciation of seeing yous and different shades and to be able to appreciate complexity and to be able to appreciate nuance. The, the irony, though, is that Esau to outsiders may have been seen as the more worldly and sophisticated of the twin brothers, right? He was the one that was out there in the world. He's the one that left his parents' home. He was hunting and meeting women. And who was Yaakov? Yaakov's described in the Torah as a Ishtam, Yosheva Alim, as the simple man who's sitting at home in the tent and learning Torah. But Tom here actually doesn't mean simplistic. It doesn't mean naive or unworldly or uneducated. After all, we know that Yaakov was an intellectual. Uh, he was learning. Rather, Tom means that he was able to maintain an innocence, a pure outlook. He was able to make sure that he didn't get cynical about the world around him. We know that Yaakov actually had a very complex life and he had to handle very, very challenging situations with Lavan and with others. And his eyes are definitely open to tough things and to difficult people. And yet he does his best to navigate those situations with grace and not to lose like a simple faith that he has in the world. So I think this is a real challenge for all of us, especially today. Are we able to be sophisticated individuals who have complex outlooks and who are not naive and who are engaged with the world, while at the same time also maintaining a certain mood and a certain amuna pshuta, what I would call a certain innocent and simple, uh, pure faith. And I think this is also like this idea really also jives with Yitzchak's remark 
when later on in the Parsha, Yaakov comes to get a bracha and he's dressed as Esav and Yitzchak's really confused. And he says, one second, what's going on here? Hakol kol Yaakov vayadai midei Esav. The voice is the voice of Yaakov uh, and the hands are the hands of Esav. And I once read a beautiful church interpretation by uh, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag on this, where he said that Yitzchak may indeed have wanted to give Esav a very physical bracha connected to wealth and working the lands, because he looked at Esav as the one who was indeed more capable of getting out there and getting ahead in the world. Now, it could be that um, he also had a bracha for Yaakov, but the bracha that he had from Yaakov for Yaakov is going to be related purely to more spiritual matters. It's Rivka, though, the mother who understood that the material and the spiritual don't need to be completely separate, meaning you could be an Isham Yosheva Alim and you could still be somebody who is engaged in the physical world and who knows how to do business like we see Yaakov's able to do later with Lavan. So when she sent Yaakov into his father, dressed in what felt like the hairy, you know, arms of Esav, she was basically conveying that message to her husband that you could have the coal of Yaakov, you could have the coal Torah and the Kultzfila of Yaakov, even while you sometimes have to have, or you're able to have the Yadayim of Esav, you could have that pleasantness and that gentility, and you could speak with that certain softness that Yaakov had while still being able to like hands-on engage, you know, and get dirty and engage in physical things. And I think sometimes also, we could also think of the Yadayim of Esav as sometimes also that, especially here in Israel, Sometimes people with the call of Yaakov also have to be able to have the adayim of Esav in the sense of, you know, we could take 18-year-old yeshiva students and we could send them out to the army and to Tzahal and they're anything but naive and simplistic and we, they're exposed to the harshest and most difficult of realities um, and they need to have the adayim of Esav in order to fight and in order to protect us and in order to be strong, but they could still maintain at the same time the call of Yaakov. And that we live in a world where we know that um, things could be complex and they could be nuanced and they could be integrated um, and still coherent, one coherent whole at the same time. And that therefore, you know, that uh, appreciating kind of that there is a certain sophistication or nuance that's lacking in Esav, even though from the outside people may not appreciate that and they may see Yaakov as the one who's naive, but that our goal in life is that um, somehow we'll be able to successfully navigate the complex and nuanced realities that we live in. So, you know, um, we're uh, recording this couple of weeks before Toldot in the midst of really, really difficult and challenging times here in Medina Israel. And we hope and pray that all of us are able to kind of, um, I don't know, lean into and engage with the complexities of life right now, which involve us very much maintaining the call of Yaakov and davening and learning and calling out to Hashem, while at the same time doing everything that we need to do with the Yadayim Yadayim Esav that sometimes Yaakov is asked to uh, put on. So we hope that uh, Hashem sees those efforts that we're making and um, uh, answers our tefillah. Absolutely. Amen. And thank you so much for coming on today and sharing such relevant and powerful and important Torah with us. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.
Thank you for listening to Desert Island Torah. Feel free to share our podcast with family and friends so that we can reach out to Amisrael. And if you enjoyed that episode, please feel free to download and subscribe. And if you want to discuss your own Desert Island Torah, get in touch at desertislandtorah at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening.